my name is Justin Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And on this episode, we need your click. So we're talking about a filmmaker that I, I guess she wasn't recently in the news, but it feels like a lot of people are talking about her because she is one of those directors that like because she's Joker fan number one. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about Lucretia Martel. Uh, what jury was she on that they awarded the Joker to? It was the Venice Film Festival. Yeah. And, you know, having watched some more of her movies this week, I get it. Yeah, she's too. interested in class. <laughs> That's right. And so she's a director who hasn't directed that many films. Zama came out recently. And Zama was one that I think uh, she was very well regarded before that. But Zama, I think it was just recently number one in the film comment poll mm-hmm. of best films of the decade. It and was really regarded as one of the major events. And it was an event because she hadn't made a movie for so long. Mm-hmm. So her coming back and doing something that, while still in the wheelhouse of what she had done before, was much bigger, like mm-hmm. it was on a bigger scope, it was a period piece, I think that really floored a lot of people who were waiting for her to make that big step. She has been called the Argentinian Terrence Malick, probably just for her productivity for the first four movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's also been called arguably the greatest Argentinian director at least living and she's somebody who when you hear her described you often hear her described in terms of she's precise uh, her films are beautifully composed they're opaque challenging <laughs> slow <laughs> and then we go okay maybe I'll watch these later let's put Godzilla versus Megalon on <laughs> that's right but no more procrastinating yep. because we dived into the filmography this week I saw Zama before this I think you saw it too that's right it was on your top 10 list of that year I liked it very much I was I mean I, I was very impressed by it it's a hard film mm-hmm. and the ones I watched this week are hard too and I gotta say had a little, had a little tough time, had yeah. a tough time being in this world this week. But let's let's unpack that because I do I do like these movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Let's uh, they're they're hard to connect with. <laughs> yeah, they but are. they're obviously brilliant. So I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast before, and I'm going to say it again. Movies about rich people are very difficult for me just to care, <laughs> especially when they're as opaque as they are here, where it's not necessarily any kind of narrative or conflict it's mostly the presentation of these people and just watching them in their world is how you're supposed to get involved it's you know martel more than anything is a mood director Mm -hmm. she wants you to get into the mood that she's presenting and she does this through many different stylistic um techniques either like sound that is almost on the kind of surreal level Mm -hmm. or it's visuals that are very claustrophobic and very well composed but not in a Wes Anderson style more in a like oh someone is framed within something or their face is cut off and that visual presentation serves a metaphorical purpose so in a Tom Hooper style yeah that's right somebody's Tom at, Hooper somebody's at the extreme right of frame yeah. or somebody's head is cut off Mr. Katz himself uh, I mean one of the films we watched this week is called The Headless Woman and as many have observed uh, one of the reasons why the title is apt is because people's heads are often cut off mm. of the cinemascope frame. The uh, main character portrayed by Maria Onetto is often pushed to the side of the frame or she's at the far back and there's other stuff happening in front of her because it's illustrating her distance to the situation that's going on. I mean, watching The Headless Woman is like, oh, okay, I get it. It's like Antonioni. It's like Red Desert. Right. It's about the alienation of this main character. The issue with something like Headless Woman and the thing that's more difficult to get into is that Antonioni will give that like visual opulence to his audience. It's like, oh, uh, don't worry. I'll give 
give you beautiful images to look and uh, situate these empty people in while Martel is not specifically doing this because her Argentinian landscape is dirty and grimy and real. And I mean, the three films we're going to be talking about today, they all take place in Martel's home province of Salta. Mm -hmm. So, and it, it feels like, you know, if you had to use one kind of word to describe all these pictures, it's rot. Uh -huh. Because that's what they're about, I guess, um, visually and metaphorically. Yeah. So you watched the first one. I did watch it. The Swamp, it's called, from uh, 2001. Mm -hmm. And it's something that reminded me uncomfortably with all the family gatherings that I've been to. This kind of like middle class. In the case of this movie, it's kind of upper middle class. These people who, they have money, but they still live in like dirt and just garbage their pool is the literal swamp it's dirty mm -hmm. it hasn't been changed in years and they just sit around drunk all day because they have nothing else to do oftentimes just sleeping through the heat and it's a movie that i was reading about it that like it won a sundance uh writer's prize for its script mm -hmm. and before it was produced and the people in charge were like hey could you focus on one character because mm -hmm. the scenes that she portrays are all kind of slivers of all these people's lives and it's a very extended family and there's no specific narrative or conflict and so it just kind of happens and then eventually it ends well her movies are all about this slow accumulation of detail you mm -hmm. have to pay close attention to them in the headless woman from 2008 and i realize i'm jumping ahead in the chronology a bit here but it starts with this upper middle class maybe even upper class woman she's driving her car and she gets briefly distracted by her phone ringing and then thump she runs over something mm -hmm. she she stops and you're sitting there lingering with her for maybe two three minutes while she tries to compose herself and then she drives off and then you see she's run over something which is probably a dog yes uh, but she thinks maybe she ran over a kid. And uh, Martel showed us kids before that. Yeah. Just so you would make that link as well. And the rest of the movie is all about this, uh, I guess, kind of psychological dissolution that she goes through, trying to wrestle with the guilt. Because she's not convinced she ran over a dog. She thinks maybe she ran over a kid. Some of the people around her are saying, no, you ran over a dog. Uh, her husband takes her to the side of the road, shows, look, there, it was a dog there. Later, a kid is found in the river next to it. Oh, but he's drowned. That's what everybody right. says. He drowned. But, and uh, describing the plot, I I'm making it sound like... A thr like a thriller of some kind? And in fact, her movies are sometimes described as thrillers. Hmm. Probably just pure marketing, right? Yes, that's like right. If, if you go on, like, for example, Rotten Tomatoes, and you look at the plot synopsis, it says, you know, in this in this uh, thought-provoking thriller from acclaimed director Lucretia Martel. The thing about Martel's films, other than Zama, I will say, mm -hmm. is that none of them have climaxes. They're mm -hmm. all, like, building up to something. It's clearer in her second and third film, mm -hmm. but, like, you never reach that resolution. Oftentimes, because no resolution will actually happen. Like, Headless Woman is essentially, like, a crimes and misdemeanors kind of situation where at the end the person she gets over it like she'll figure out some way to cope will it haunt her every few days probably for the rest of her life i, I also thought of crimes and misdemeanors while mm -hmm. i was watching it because in that movie the martin landau character realizes that uh yeah if if he just goes ahead with that and stops thinking about it he'll be he'll be fine having committed this murder but in the headless woman it's the, the woman is very guilty, feels very guilty. She's trying to communicate, I think I did something wrong. And the society around her is what's saying, oh, no. The kind of middle class society that's the, like, the, hey, let's not, you know, shake anything or move anything out of place. There's a whole infrastructure around her. And 
Martell, like scenes don't unfold the way scenes normally do in movies where there's a beginning, middle, end in the scene. Mm-hmm. Scenes don't flow into each other like they normally do, where where information builds on inf- I mean, sorry, information does build on information. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But but not not in the linear sort of way we we normally expect. Yeah. So the information that builds is you see her surrounded by the help and the help are all people who are of of color mm-hmm. and are of a lower socioeconomic of that area i mean that's a very big concern out of all of martel's throughout films. Yes. throughout and it becomes particularly explicit in zama where mm. it's very directly about colonialism but in this one it's not really explicitly commented on, but the fact that you've seen this woman do this traumatic thing at the beginning of the movie and the fact that you know what she's thinking you see the people around her and you realize that, yeah, like there's a rot in this society. Mm. Well, you know, crimes and misdemeanor, I think the difference between that and the headless woman is that the Martin Landau character in that film took an action that he feels guilt about. That's not what the headless woman is about because the guilt comes from inaction of mm-hmm. what she did, right? Because when she hit that kid, it was an accident. She could have gone and checked or see what it was, but she decided to just keep driving, put the sunglasses on, and try to forget it. Mm-hmm. And that's what's eating away at her. And that's what's eating away at almost all the characters in these three early films. It's mm-hmm. oftentimes a feeling of, like, that middle class, like, okay, I'm here. I don't really want to do anything because I'm comfortable. You know, I was watching a video, an Argentinian film critic was talking about that, you know, in the 80s, because they were coming out of a military junta, the filmmakers wanted to be very didactic about mm-hmm. the stories that they were saying that like, this is wrong, this is bad. You know, everything that you believed, you were incorrect. And with the Ar- Argentinian new wave, which, you know, Martel is kind of part of, but the difference between her and the other filmmakers is that they are classified as kind of a, a neorealist group, while a lot of people consider Martel kind of pushing slightly down a surrealist bent. Her uh-huh. movies are not constructed in that kind of like, you know, verite, like you are here, I'm showing you the situation. They're abstract in their presentation. And they're, again, I mean, the big kind of push against the, you know, cinema of the 80s or the cinema du papa, to use the uh-huh. French um, new wave saying, is that none of her films are didactic. Mm-hmm. So you're not supposed to kind of like get a message from it she's not pushing it on you and also i'll just say that her visual style in the headless woman i found sort of actively unpleasant to look at i mean in all the movies it's actively unpleasant but just the fact that the the shots are exquisitely composed and yet they're composed in this very abrasive way Mm -hmm. so i just felt like not comfortable in my own skin while I, like I didn't like being in these spaces yeah did you see your own uh, reflection of your middle class values playing out oh in maybe this picture? maybe yeah. sure Th- by the way none of this is a complaint like, yes the movie, the movie does it well yes <laughs> I'm just saying I hated being there <laughs> you said that about the holy girl as well Martel's second film of 2004 mm-hmm. which I would say is her most narratively conventional film which it isn't really because it has all of these characters drifting in and out mm-hmm. and all these little dramas that don't really it's not like grand hotel right like yeah. it, they don't it's they not, don't all they don't all really obviously interact in any sort of schematic way with each but other but at the end they essentially all come together and like yeah. it's all going to play off everything that you've seen but, and there is drama in the conventional linear sense mm-hmm. in the way that the swamp doesn't really have and the headless woman it has like a slow kind of accumulation but not towards a kind of tragic climax or anything mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. and cuz like in um the holy girl it's about the titular character who is discovering her own sexuality in the way yeah. that it can be utilized in the sense of 
I, I mean, it's a, it's a, an abusive, yeah, abusive kind, relationship. Ca- kind of thing because, yeah, it, it's set at a hotel, a dilapidated, rundown hotel in a small town in Argentina, and there's a convention going on for doctors, and there's this older doctor who... Uh, in a crowd comes up from behind her and basically uh, leans up against her with his erection. Yeah, and sexually assaults her. Yeah, and she is, I guess, probably 14, 15. Mm -hmm. So coming into, emerging into her sexuality, and she's also becoming more conscious of her faith. Mm -hmm. In an early scene of the movie, a nun character says to the class that signs from God come in unexpected ways. And something about the... Uh, something about religious ecstasy and other sorts of ecstasies yeah. come together. The girl believes that, like, through her own actions, she can help this man who is doing bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. But obviously, she's also sexually confused herself. Mm-hmm. Like, there must be some part of her that is confused and maybe maybe has an attraction repulsion to the idea of a grown man being sexually attracted to her. And while this is going on, her mom is also starting a relationship uh, or kind of vying... A bit at, of a flirty yeah, thing. with the same man. Yeah. <laughs> and her friend uh, of the titular holy girl is also having a sexual awakening in a sense. Yeah. And oh boy, do these all come together in the climax? And of course w- they do. By the way, what a sexual awakening she's having. It's uh, semi-incestuous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, that appears also in the swamp. So, you know, you know, middle class, they're all upper middle class. They're all procreating together. Right. And there are other stories, mm. you know, go, going on through. But I think like the emotional through line of this film from the perspective of a young girl, kind of like the coming of age story. Martel just kind of pinpoints exactly like little looks and kind of like little reactions of things that are going like the back of someone's neck, somebody getting out of a pool. And that's just the perspective and the understanding of that is so specific is which is why I think this movie works as well as it does. There's that great scene where the guy, you know, halfway through the movie, he comes up behind her again and tries to do the same thing. And then she turns around suddenly and he gets very shocked and afraid and runs off. Mm. You know, he thinks, oh, my God, she's going to she's going to tell on me. But there's ambivalent feelings in her or there, there are confused feelings in her. Like she wants to she wants to simultaneously help him, but also consummate yeah well i mean martell's talked about that like when she was this main character's age that she also was very religious and that she believed that like god looked down upon her and that she was special and that she could bring and help people in this way and you know if you believe in god and you think this is a sign and if god is controlling me no matter what i do it's correct Mm -hmm. then you know this is probably the right thing to do and this is how my biological feelings are pushing me to do these things which are gross and bad not bad in the sense that it's sexual but bad that it's in the sense was it's a grown man who is abusing in this power structure yeah but i I also like it's a movie that sort of deals with very difficult stuff like that Mm -hmm. deals with these difficult feelings that often come in people when they're you know just 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 discovering some sense of sexuality so i mean the issue i have uh, the issue i have with martell's films yeah you tell her yeah that's right <laughs> yeah, i'm coming in no this is my particular pre- preferences is that i always ask myself these movies while they can be very moving is that they're supposed to shock people out of their complacency and in fact she has, she even has said, said this yeah. that she doesn't want to like you know chide the the people who are like the um characters in these movies but she just wants to awaken them to this reality they're never going to watch these movies uh, who, who are they like the middle class the middle like class. especially like the argentinian kind of stuck in their ways I guess so, but then again, Martel is a very 
acclaimed mm-hmm. uh, festival filmmaker. Yes. I mean, she basically played. You know, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to paint with broad strokes who her audience is. I, I mean, I guess it's like the older I get, the more didactic I get. Maybe that will fade away over time. <laughs> but that kind of like you want a movie that's more upfront. Yeah, not more. I mean, or I angrier. think these movies are more. Yeah, maybe more angry. I don't know. I'm I'm not the filmmaker. I can't dictate uh-huh. what she should do. But I'm speaking for me what I personally react to. I mean, I'll say that. The, the worlds these movies depict mm-hmm. and the the issues they bring up. Um, I mean, we're unfamiliar with them coming from a North American context. Well, yeah, that's another mm-hmm. thing, because uh, I know that there are some who have interpreted the headless woman as being a metaphor for the the way people disappeared during the dirty wars mm-hmm. in the 1970s or even the swamp uh is a direct criticism on the middle class and how they did nothing while these military dictatorships mm-hmm. were going on and they were just like business as usual and in argentina they have a particular relationship with religion and mm-hmm. sex there that is not quite the same as it is here like mm-hmm. it's very culturally specific I'll say that these particular movies, and I, I like Zama more than I like these two mm-hmm. movies, but these particular movies don't hit me where I live, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure why that is. I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know. I know because they're obviously masterful in so many ways. I think that maybe because they are so obtuse and they are giving you such a particular kind of setting that you are not familiar with. Again, in that North American context, mm-hmm. like this kind of hot rotting kind of Argentinian place. I mean, it's supposed to, like, these people are also coming out of a history that was very controlled and specific, Mm -hmm. and it's that kind of, they were in power at that point, in a way, so there's a malaise that has continued since then, Mm -hmm. and how has that kind of extended on the way they treat people? Like, in the swamp, um, one of the main characters is continually kind of deriding the help, who's an indigenous woman, Mm -hmm. and that how that is just part of the fabric of the everyday. I think one of the reasons or some of the reasons why I liked Zama so much and these ones leave me or these ones I feel a little more distant from mm-hmm. is Zama is funnier and the images pop. Like I would say that yeah there's Zama a hothouse atmosphere is in very Zama. humorous in like that kind of dry and I think the surrealism is even Amped more up. heightened than these films which are very kind of down to earth with that particular lens on them. The Headless Woman is surrealist in the sense that it feels like it's gaslighting mm-hmm. you as you're watching it. Because as it goes along... You're like, did I see that? <laughs> yeah, did, did you see that? Or in, in the way the story is told in The Headless Woman, for example, early in the movie, she goes to a hotel and she has sex with a man and you think it's her husband, but then later her actual husband shows up. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing to make you think about that first scene that she's having an affair. The, the story unfolds in that, in that way. And... As the movie goes on, she does things like like her own her own state of sanity sort of unravels when she's trying to sort of retrace certain steps she did. Yeah, jog her memory as she's, you know, what she did after the accident. And she's Mm -hmm. discovering like, wait, I didn't get an X-ray when I was here. And you realize it's because the men in her life, Mm -hmm. this patriarchal system is actually (laughs) covering the tracks. Yeah, because like people know more than she does. You see, like 
her uh, husband and her brother like whispering in the corner mm-hmm. and, and you know it's does she accept this does she keep going on does she kind of um wipe away the horrible mistake that she made by donating a bunch of shirts mm-hmm. to someone that she paid to mm-hmm. um, take plants out of her car for her? <laughs> i do wonder if i also find it easier to connect with zama because the particular colonial situation that it depicts like I can, I can, I, I, I can almost project other colonial situations. Mm, yeah, onto it's it. not specifically Argentinian. Yeah. I mean, it's very specifically Argentinian, but yeah, yeah. In but such I mean, like the, that... the general way that, like, you know, and you know, Zama also builds mm-hmm. to an ending in the sense of like a conventional, like it ends. Yeah, yeah. It does. While none of the the movies that we watch this week do. Because those are not the stories she's trying to tell. I mean, I was reading an article of, like, someone who read one of her scripts, which was, like, 200 pages. She Mm -hmm. essentially wrote it like a novel. So when you read it, you got a very distinct idea of, like, the world that she's building. And Mm -hmm. that kind of, you know, narrative buildup didn't matter when you're so entrenched in this universe that she's putting on screen like soundscapes are so important in her films Mm -hmm. she talks about like in the swamp they're all sitting in these metal chairs and like she said she needed these metal chairs because they needed to make a particular sound when they ran across the tiles i mean that was another great thing about seeing zama in a theater Mm -hmm. it felt like a really immersive experience like i think that she wants you to be kind of absorbed in this world she doesn't want to take you by the hand and you know bring you to a destination she just wants you to like look through a window for two hours Mm -hmm. and then that window gets shut and you're out so you get what you want from it and you know she's not going to tell you what that is i do hope these movies live on in my memory Mm -hmm. i'm very curious to where she's going to go from here because you know the movie she wanted to follow up the headless woman was a science fiction picture she was very passionate about i would love to see that yeah (laughs) i mean there's that famous story that like after zama came out marvel contacted her for black widow And her response was, I don't know, those Marvel films are too loud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they have soundscapes. Yeah, that's right. So uh, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. Our first letter is from Ben Booth, and it goes, Hey, Will and Justin, I'm a fairly new lister, and I've been really enjoying digging through the back catalog. I'm currently living in a small apartment in L.A. shared between four people, and these days a living room TV is usually occupied with the latest Disney Plus fare that's been trotted out from the vault. While I cherish the time spent with my roommate watching Xenon, Girl of the 21st Century, my primary home cinema consumption occurs on my laptop in my room. Unfortunately, my laptop's currently totaled and while waiting for a replacement i've been watching movies on my phone my question is can you recommend any movies that still work or whose viewing experiences is even enhanced when watched on such a tiny screen the criterion app must be good for more than listening to the barcelona commentary tracks at your movie theater job on tuesday night right I think it's a tragedy that people watch movies on their fucking phones. Who am I doing an impression of? David Lynch. Happy birthday, David Lynch. Happy birthday. birthday. I'm going to say this. It's a controversial opinion. But if you only have a phone to watch on your uh, your movies on, watch movies on your phone. Wow. Yes. And you know why I'm going to say this? Because I think that movies is all about the attention you give it. Because you can have the best TV in the in world. world. Can you remember the last movie you watched at home by yourself that you did not look at your phone once while watching it? No, you can't. Not, not once? <laughs> not once. Mm. Exactly. So that's what I'm going to say. And when you watch movies on your phone, uh, if you turn everything else, cause I like to watch movies on my tablet and like lay down on the couch. No distractions, no text messages, nothing coming in. I can't pick something up. Like I'm not going to go on my phone and you just watch it. I found that it's a perfect way to trap myself in a movie. You put headphones on. Yeah. It's the only soundscape. So, you know, I mean, my 
broadest thing to say is watch them on your phone. Watch anything as long as you give it your full attention. Yeah, I agree. Because <laughs> if you put like the Criterion app, I don't. I'm just saying that sometime around the 45 minute mark, you might be just a little curious. Did I gather any text? Text messages. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. But if you, you know, I, if you do something like VLC, you can lock it. I think Criterion app like stuff doesn't pop up either. If mm-hmm. you, you like click the lock option. I got to say. I got a tablet for Christmas because I asked for one and that Criterion app, uh, so much good stuff on it. Sponsors Criterion because it's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what I mean, but I know what the actual question was, what movies work like on a small screen? Well, I mean, I... I Anything. <laughs> like. Well, I do think that, you know, if you watch Citizen Kane in a theater, mm. obviously it's better. If you watch Citizen Kane on TV, it's better than your phone. But it still remains mm, Citizen not, Kane if yeah, you watch if it on you your watch phone. Yeah, if you watch it anywhere. So, so there's that. Um... Although, I like to say the thing that, like, you sit at the back of the theater, put your hands out, and how big the screen is. Yeah. <laughs> Versus, like, how big your phone is when you hold it in front of your face. Guess what? Same size. That said, weren't you a little disappointed that the new Michael Bay started on Netflix? Uh, I would have liked to see it in the theater. Because he gives you that assault mm-hmm. of experience. I'm not saying I don't that, even like, like don't him. Go, but... don't, go to a, don't go to a theater. I mean, you're, you're um, more kind of pro, like, that's a movie I'd watch at home than I am. So. Well, yeah, I've definitely become less of a purist about the theatrical mm-hmm. experience because I've just seen, I think, one too many, you know, basically Netflix originals. Yeah, you know? <laughs> in movie theaters. Or, or things that could have been Netflix originals mm-hmm. in movie theaters. And, you know, if if you go to the AMC Young and Dundas in Toronto. Ugh, awful crowds, awful presentation. And you go to Cinema 14 or whatever, and it's a shoebox, and you're watching something that's incorrectly masked. And so dark. The light bulb isn't yeah. isn't offering at full capacity it's like why would i pay 14 dollars? i would say the one advantage of a theater for me and you is that we will not look at our phone when we're in that cinema exactly yeah, yeah. so you're trapped there and you have to watch that that's why like if you have a tablet or even a laptop and you you can sit there and just do it i i mean not a laptop because the thing about like watching films on a computer is that you will get distracted yes there's no other way around it like you're like oh i can just minimize it in the corner and do something I'm else watching it. Yeah, i'm watching it. it you're not let's be honest yeah uh i would say Say, mm, yeah, I don't really have any suggestions of like stuff on the small screen. You know, it's funny that like, you know, when TV became popular, like filmmaking completely changed because producers would say stuff like, well, you can't do big wide shots because, you know, people's TVs are so small. You have to do close ups. Mm-hmm. And that kind of like dictated the grammar of television. Yeah. Well, Charlie Chaplin makes more sense in a theater mm-hmm. because he filmed everything with his whole body in the frame. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, the TV's not cutting it off. So. It's not cutting it off, but it becomes like it's a different experience mm-hmm. to look at the Academy ratio and look at somebody like Chaplin who is composing it because it looks it frankly just looks slightly more distant when you watch it home on a TV. Mm-hmm. That said, you can still watch Chaplin on a TV. <laughs> yeah, fine. get VR goggles. You put your phone in it, and then you're. Have you ever done that? No. That you can get VR goggles, and you're in a movie theater. So like, you turn your head, you can see the seats, and the screen is at the distance that it would be mm-hmm. at a movie theater. I mean, I can't wear VR. It hurts my head, but yeah. it's interesting that you can do that. Uh, I don't have to wear that over my glasses. No, it's awful. <laughs> Anything I, I, over our glasses. Whenever I go to a 3D movie, I it's hate it. It's the worst. Because if you're a glasses wearer like I am, it the pinches your nose. Yeah. Thank God that like 3D movies are going out of style Thank in North God. American. That <laughs> I don't even remember the last 3D movie I paid to see. There was a time where you couldn't even like get a normal screening. That yeah. They just didn't have any. I can't remember either, but yeah, I mean, 3D movies, I I only see them if it's like oh fuck i'm here for the 3d movie <laughs> yeah you get tricked <laughs> yeah uh, uh, uh but i would definitely oh uh, yeah what would i recommend <laughs> yeah what we recommend we're like going in circles because we got nothing no you know what i would recommend i would recommend short films particularly like 
check out you know looney tunes cartoons on your phone stuff like that classic animation yeah. but you know what I, you know i'm gonna be the devil's advocate here and say that like classic cartoons and cinemas are the best but the thing is unless you're in los angeles and you can go to the new beverly they don't play anywhere i'm also kind of thinking about attention span and being mm. like well if you're watching something on your phone on on the subway yeah or on i a mean bus, that's different yeah like i yeah watch catch up on the classic shorts this the poor fellow doesn't have a laptop though or a tv so yeah. he's sitting in his room laying down in his bed uh, uh you know open that criterion app watch some antonioni yeah why not <laughs> the Henri of watching it on the new technology in the in this small form yeah <laughs> and turn off all your mobile data watch it. watch eraserhead just to spite him. david lynch <laughs> david lynch probably doesn't even watch any movies unless they're directed by somebody who does um transcendental meditation so yeah i don't i never got the sense that david lynch was a big cinephile no i don't yeah. think he is either yeah, yeah. And good for him, frankly. I don't know. (laughs) Well, I hope you get that laptop fixed, too, and you escape the hell that is living with four people in an apartment in L.A. Awful. Awful. (laughs) And the next letter is from Alexander Ross, and it goes, Hey, Justin and Will, a couple of years ago, I used to follow the Rotten Tomatoes in order to know what was worth seeing. The movie had over 90% score. That meant that it was basically a masterpiece. No, now it feels like movies with over 90% scores come out every week. I know the score has no real value and doesn't decide whether a movie is good or not, but I find it very odd. Why do you think this has happened? Thanks, Alex. I've observed that trend too. Didn't it used to seem like in the early 2000s, like something over 90% was a rare occurrence? You know what? I have no scientific data to back this up, but I don't think so. I think the scores are pretty much the same as they always were. It's just that because we live in such a big social media bubble, we're much more aware of it. And it's, it's you know, we've talked about this before. It's easy to shit on Rotten Tomatoes. How dare you tell me if I should see a movie or not based on a percentage and that you rate everyone if they liked it or not. Some of them, they obviously uh, didn't like it, but you wrote that they liked it to boost that score. You're saying this sarcastically, but I totally agree with the sarcastic sentiment. So I'm going to look at the scores that are on there right now. Okay, we're in January right now. Yeah, so 75% Bad Boys for Life. You know what? I buy it. Bad Boys for Life is not offensive enough for people to hate it. Uh, 1917, 89%. Doolittle, 19%. Have you seen Doolittle yet? I plan to. Okay. <laughs> Jumanji, the next level, 71%. The thing about Rotten Tomatoes is, you know, we've, everyone said this before, that it takes out, it's, you know, a high score just means somebody could have given it like, you know, 2.5 out of 5. Like, that's a that's a pass, right? Uh-huh. So the percentage goes higher. Rotten Tomatoes is only good if you need to convince a friend or, a, or like, a parent to be like, hey, the Rotten Tomatoes score is very high. I hear people say cinema score all the time. I'm like, I don't know what that is. I don't care. Cinema score, I really don't get. Like, who? It's who like in Las them? Vegas, and it's like a bunch of people coming out of a theater, and they rate them the day it comes out. I actually did a cinema score survey once. Did you? Yeah, I was at the Angelica Film Center in New York, and mm-hmm. I saw The Artist. And I came out. That's of how that, it came out with the Oscars. And I, and I gave it a score. Yeah, what'd you give it? I gave it a B minus. <laughs> Very respectable. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, these websites. I mean, Rotten Tomatoes is good to see a bunch of reviews. Like, that you can just go to one place and scroll through it, and you can see, like, some rando, some hack. I'll tell you what's absolutely useless about Rotten Tomatoes is when you go on any director or actor's filmography Not the worst. for their highest and lowest rated, the highest rated is inevitably, like, some documentary they appeared in, <laughs> yep. and the lowest rated is something they had a cameo in. It's, it's, <laughs> it's pointless. So, it, yeah, you want to go, like, okay, what's Martin Scorsese's highest rated movie? And it's like... 
I don't know. Fucking. Yeah, but even if it was the highest rated, it'd be like, oh, that's obvious. Or yeah. how dare they? But like, you, go, you go on his page and 100% it's something like, oh, yeah, he was in that documentary about Larry Cohen. So it has 100% <laughs> rated. Lowest, lowest rated. Oh, it was, I don't know, some. The thing about Rotten Tomatoes that it's the most useless for its TV shows. It's yeah. like, you can't. What? Something that's funny about Rotten Tomatoes, too, is a lot of the big uh, newspapers and magazines have put their archives online. So you'll see reviews like you go on the page for the wizard of Oz mm-hmm. and it's, you know, 95% or something. <laughs> yeah. And the 5% are reviews that came out in 1939. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're just online and back. Oh, Bosley Crowther. <laughs> and back when people were allowed to comment on reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, you would see people getting very angry at these critics who died Ugh. 50 years ago. It's like, fucking bossy crowther who are you who do you think who do you think you are helen lawrenson from you, vanity fair you know i do miss the imdb message boards in the sense that like people would actually be like discussing like the movie and like questions they have about the movie sometimes the filmmaker would pop up and you're like whoa they're alive oh yeah it was a real algonquin round table over <laughs> right. there yeah and then it's a, <laughs> but then superhero movies started coming out and things changed i like the imdb message boards for the uh, stirring conversations about actresses breasts <laughs> <laughs> or isn't it like exclamation mark exclamation mark exclamation mark this ending makes no yeah, sense <laughs> every single movie had I didn't get the ending yep and then you click and you're like maybe they will explain something worst movie ever <laughs> yeah rest in peace because yeah. that doesn't really exist on Letterboxd anymore yeah, now it's just people uh, going on whoever gave Joker a bad review and just oh, leaving angry comments. Do they? I mean, I never see it. I've seen it's that. so easy to like block people on Letterboxd that mm, feels good. I don't even really pay that much, much attention. attention to it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm like, sorry, folks. <laughs> no, but you like the attention. I guess. You know what I like on Letterboxd? I like hanging out with my friend Justin. That's right. Like, yes. we, we'll see each other's reviews, reviews. and see what we're watching. <laughs> yep, you that's know, exactly me, why. Justin, a couple other people. That's, <laughs> that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, oh, man, after doing Martell this week. Another let's... film about colonialism. <laughs> yeah, that's It's right. Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> let's set up that T-ball and, <laughs> whoa, home run. <laughs> what did we think of Raiders of the Lost Ark? <laughs> Find out on the Patreon. Patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. Okay, so next week. Ah, man. We've got a bit of a two-parter. Yeah, we do. Because our 200th episode is, as we promised a long time ago, Godzilla. Yes. And Godzilla, big subject. And Will suggested this a long time ago. What if we did an episode on Ishiro Honda? So, Ishiro Honda, for people that don't know, he directed the original Godzilla, and then he was cursed to direct Godzilla films for essentially the rest of his career until he got back together with his good friend Akira Kurosawa, and they kind of co-directed the last few Kurosawa movies. That's right. In addition to Godzilla movies, he directed many of the other Toho monster movies, Mm -hmm. including War of the Gargantuas, Gorath, Mothra, Frankenstein Conquers the World, Rodan, I believe, did he direct? Yep, Rodan was one of his as well. Now, what did he do before Godzilla? Because he did other stuff. He did. And I did some research. None of them are available. None of them. English subtitles, except for one called Farewell Rabool, which I have here on the list. We'll make sure to watch we this gotta one. gotta watch it. There's a lot he made before, and I think maybe they're just programmers, or maybe the materials were lost, or people didn't care, because he did comedies. He did all sorts of stuff. So I'm going to recommend that film. I'm also going to recommend we watch Matango. Uh, I think it's like Attack of the Mushroom People. I saw that one a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, his psychedelic ones. And I have a few more uh, here that I could recommend, like The Mysterians, The Human Vapor. But I would 
say we should check out Dreams, which he's mm. uncredited as the co-director, but is basically considered the co-director at this point. Should we watch the first Godzilla for this one? <sighs> yes, we should. Okay. Because let's get all of that like original Godzilla out of the way. And then, because the original Godzilla is a different movie from the other Godzillas. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very similar to Godzilla 1985, but we'll get there when we get there. <laughs> <laughs> that was sarcasm for people that don't know. So yeah, I'm very excited to, um, I, I'm going to say, watch Godzilla movies. If people have been following me on Twitter or Letterboxd, I've been watching many Godzilla movies. You've been trying to watch all of them. I will watch all of them. Okay. I am 16 deep at this point. Oh, man. Yeah, I even watched Mothra and Rodan. Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, I, I, I drew the line at uh, Frankenstein Conquerors of the World, even though the monster from that th- does appear and destroy all monsters. You should but, watch it. It's a beautiful film. Oh, wait, no. Actually, you know what? I'm wrong. That monster comes from King Kong Escapes. I did watch that one. So the T-Rex that King Kong fights. It's like Barugon or something like That's that. That's a fun movie, King Kong Escapes. Or did you not? I didn't like it. This, yeah. I, you know what's funny about watching all these Godzilla movies is anytime there's Caucasian characters, the movie just sinks in my estimation. Not it a feels fan like, of Nick Adams? No, nah, not a fan of Nick Adams. <laughs> I'm not a fan of Invasion of the Astro Monsters. Wow. I know. We'll talk about it when we do the Godzilla. It's but, boring. That's it okay. is boring. Yeah. yeah. But you know what I have discovered? A lot of these movies like the human stuff. So that's a little teaser for when we actually get to our big 200th blockbuster Godzilla episode. 200 episodes, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so next week is Shira Honda. And until then, my name is Justin Group. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Big news, Will. This is not even Gold Ninja video news. This is like a film has been scanned, restored, and it's being put out on the market. It says 4K restoration on the ad copy. Okay, now I'm going to pretend to be surprised like you didn't tell me before. <laughs> What's the movie that's getting a big restoration? Yeah, pretend I just sent you this uh, message uh, through Messenger. Fist of Fear, Touch of Death. <gasps> Holy <Yeah>. shit. <laughs> yep. And it's a special edition with... Uh, interviews with Terry Levine. Um... Terry Levine, the head of Aquarius Releasing. Mm-hmm. Also the co-writer, Ron Harvey. The co-star, the Black Dragon himself, Ron Van <laughs> Cleef. Uh, it's got uh, other extras, theatrical trailer, yeah. the, the whole thing. Liner notes. Being put out by the film detective, not by uh, Gold Ninja Video, because we already put it out <laughs> on the, our first release. You sent it to me, and my eyes popped out of my head like a Tex Avery wolf. <laughs> Because is there any other, you know, because when we put it on our Dragon Lives Again release, we were like, no one is ever going to put this out on Blu-ray. There's no interest. Like, it, you, it's tough to get, like, a public domain bootleg of it at this point. Yeah. And they're putting it out and they're putting special features out. I like to think just inspired by us. <laughs> I, w- I was so excited to see this because Fist of Fear, Touch of Death, for those who don't know it. Yeah. And you really ought to by now. <laughs> Fist of Fear, Touch of Death is an American Bruce exploitation movie from, I think, 1980. It was produced by Terry Levine, who was a prolific distributor of 42nd Street schlock, basically. He released Deep Throat. He released... Um, Did he do um, Dr. Butcher, MD? Yeah, that was him. Yeah, that was him. A Cannibal Ferox. Mm-hmm. Lots of very sleazy movies. And this was his first original production. And what he did was he bought a movie that Bruce Lee made in Hong Kong when he was a teenager. 
just a domestic drama, has no martial arts in it. It's in black and white. Mm -hmm. He brought it over and he said, okay, well, what are we going to do with this? Okay. So what's ridiculous about this is he could have just picked any movie. Like like the fact that Bruce Lee is a child in this movie doesn't make any difference. So they made a movie. This footage, about 30 minutes of this Hong Kong melodrama is the centerpiece of this Actual Bruce Lee footage in it. Yeah. Do you think people were like, whoa, Bruce Lee's not in this movie? They're like, uh, uh, uh. He's in that flashback. Look, you got me. I'm not angry anymore. The framing device of the movie is it's at Madison Square Garden at this tournament to determine who is going to be the next Bruce Lee. Uh, Eyes get gouged out. (laughs) And it was an actual tournament uh, that was staged by this local promoter named Aaron Banks. And it, it's such a strange movie because it's hosted by Adolf Caesar. Yes. Who's trailer voice man. Yeah. 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 Who, and, and he's, yeah, he's narrating it as if it's like a TV broadcast, mm. but in dreamlike fashion, it keeps going out to these other vignettes of just martial arts tomfoolery. Like, yeah, it's like, ah, yes, Bruce Lee's great grandfather was a samurai. Cut to a Taiwanese sword play film. <laughs> well, yeah, so that this is the thing that everybody talks about with Fist of Fear, Touch of Death. The centerpiece of the movie is this 30 minutes of Bruce Lee footage where they've dubbed it like What's Up, Tiger Lily, mm-hmm. so that they're... they're so that it's like a biopic of Bruce Lee and they just totally made up his life. Yes. So it's the story of it is that Bruce Lee comes home and he's obsessed with studying the martial arts, but his parents disapprove. Total bullshit. <laughs> yeah. But according to this movie, he's inspired to study the martial arts because his grandfather was one of China's greatest samurai warriors. And it keeps coming back to this random samurai movie. It's not a samurai movie. It's a Taiwanese swordplay. Tai- well, yeah. they keep using the word, the word samurai, samurai. I know they do. Which is the big oh. bone of contention because samurais yeah. are Japanese, not Chinese. What's weird, it's like why, I guess people knew what a samurai was if they were like, oh, it's a Chinese swordsman. They'd be like, what does that mean? Yeah. They might as well just call them a ninja. <laughs> I mean, this movie has just so much stuff in it. Fred Williamson is in it as himself. Yeah, just smoking a cigar and just be like, yeah, I could beat Bruce Lee. And you forgot that, like, Bill Louie is dressed as the Green Hornet, just walking around, beating up muggers. Yeah, and it just ends with this boxing match. Yeah. A boxing match, not a martial arts fight. Yep. So, thank God they're putting it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they've sold two copies right here. Yeah, and, I mean, we want to yeah. do Basically, the Basically, this is our pitch. Please, the film detective. <laughs> Give so, us a call. Write them. Tell them. We should do the commentary. Yeah. Uh, fans, uh, no, I don't, want, I don't want people to annoy them. And they're like, oh, okay. I'm just so glad they're putting it out. <laughs> so glad. When I discovered this movie as a teenager, yeah. picked it out of the Walmart bargain bin, I watched it and I was like, what is this? Like, wh- what were they thinking when they made this? Is this a joke? And <laughs> it just felt like this dispatch from an alternate reality. Like, wh- what could this be? Why would anybody make this? And now it's just amazing to be in a world now where we're going to get a Blu-ray release that has... Well, interviews. we were, I was trying to think of like, why now? Like, why is there, you know, we should also talk about there's a Bruce Ploitation uh, Kickstarter going on right now where oh, yeah. the guys behind the Bruce Ploitation Bible uh, are doing a poster book, but most specifically, they're remastering. Um, uh, a movie called Bruce Lee's Deadly Kung Fu. Have well, you seen that one? Yeah, I have. Okay. It's also known as Bruce Lee's Secret. And uh, they're also putting out like a Godfrey Ho Dragon Lee film. Mm. And uh, I may have spoken to them and they say they have dozens of titles in the works. Oh, man. <laughs> and like, it's like this weird Bruce Ploitation wave. And I think it 
stems principally from the fact that there's a Netflix documentary that came out, which is called Oh Fight- Kung Fu Kicks or Kung something Fu like Kicks that. Yeah, and something something. Or which other. I would recommend to fans who are interested in like you know martial arts cinema because it does have some. They got like everyone, like Chang Pei Pei is there talking. And they have the cast of Fist of Fear, Touch of Death, like the director and Ted Levine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like, that's fun. But I, the only issue, I mean, the main issue I was a documentary is that like it begins in like an hour spent to Bruce Lee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's such a bummer because it's like there's so much martial arts cinema, especially from like Hong Kong, that North American people are not necessarily aware of mm. that like doesn't get documented. The documentary, I think, has a bit of an American slant to it. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff about weird american kung like they have the guy who made that underground kung fu movie the deadly art of Survi- survival in yes. new york charlie but ahern i feel like like the filmmakers obviously know this like they have eric jacobus yeah talking uh who we talked about in our independent like zero budget martial arts episode but they also don't say who he is and they show no clips from his movies so mm-hmm. i have a feeling that probably the final product may have been some notes from either producers or netflix going how about we see stuff we know? Sure. <laughs> like, can you talk about Bruce Lee? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if it was like an extended version where, I mean, they go into Chang Che, which is very interesting, mm-hmm. and like how he brought kind of like, you know, nah, it's men that only fight on screen, not these women. Yeah. Which is, yeah, not good. But yeah. I mean, I would love for someone to make a more niche documentary, maybe a sequel. 